the Reformed Church historically has always insisted that between baptism and coming to the Lord's Supper, there needs to be a confirmation that the person coming has that mouth, the mouth of faith with which to receive Christ. Welcome back to Mid-America Reformed Seminary's Roundtable Podcast, a broadcast where the faculty of Mid-America discuss Reformed theology and cultural issues, all from a Reformed perspective. You're listening to episode 124, and I'm Jared Luchibor. Thank you for tuning in. Finishing our series on the sacraments this week and reflecting upon the Lord's Supper, Dr. Cornelis Venema addresses whether children may come to the Lord's Table. Growing practice among some Reformed churches... It's known as Pedal Communion or Infant Communion. Let's hear what he's got to say about it. In our second session on the topic of the Sacrament of the Lord's Supper, I'd like to address a question that has been probably more than at any time since the Reformation in the 16th century, one that is disputed and you might say controverted among Reformed and Presbyterian uh, churches and believers in our day, and that's whether the children of believing parents who are received into the uh, body of Christ's church through baptism, signified it sealed in baptism, that they are recipients of the promises of the gospel, and because they belong to Christ, they must ought to be baptized. Shouldn't those children thereupon be also received, admitted to the table of the Lord. I have actually written a book, and I'll shamelessly advertise that at the outset. For those of you who may be interested in this question in a far more comprehensive way addressed, uh, a book entitled Children at the Lord's Table, question mark, and subtitle Assessing the Case for Pado Communion. It was the book is published by Reformation Heritage Books, and I was originally written in some ways on my part to sort the question out in my own mind. I didn't want to simply say no to the advocacy of what sometimes is called pedo communion, receiving children upon the basis of their membership in the covenant at the Lord's table without any prior professing of their faith or responding and giving public confirmation that they've embraced the promises of the gospel word that's been preached to them and that was also communicated to them by way of their baptism. I wanted to sort the question out and not simply by reason of tradition or in an unreflective way uh, respond by saying, well, of course not. We've never done that, which is a kind of familiar slogan in the history of the church the famous expression, we've never done that before. Well, as biblical Christians, we want to examine things always afresh by the standard of Scripture and in the light of the confessions and see whether what we're doing is, in fact, biblical. Well, here's the the debate. Advocates today of admitting children who are baptized to the table of the Lord when they're toddlers— so soon as they're physically able to receive the elements, and you can debate that question until the sun goes down, uh, even in some Reformed contexts, the introduction of the practice of indinction often accompanies the uh, argument for receiving children at the Lord's table. When you, Intinction is dipping the bread into the wine and 
this is a somewhat pejorative way of putting things, force-feeding even a very small infant toddler, giving them the uh, elements of the sacrament in that form at the earliest possible age. Advocates of paedo-communion are the, the fundamental argument is, in fact, some of them will, will maintain that don't call our position paedo-communion, call it covenant communion. We're just thinking through consistently. The Reformers didn't really have, and the Reformed tradition hasn't had the courage of its convictions on this question. We say that the children are members of Christ and of his body, the church. They're baptized, but we refuse them the nourishment that... Uh, comes by way of the sacrament of the Lord's Supper, and that's a failure to apply consistently. It's, it's somewhat interesting, and this is something of a generalization. Uh, oftentimes, people who come out of a Baptist, credo-Baptist background opposing the baptism of children of believing parents, when they become convinced by Reformed theology and arguments from Scripture on the matter of covenant, and who's included within the covenant and recipient of its promises, uh, they, they develop what, again, this is a pejorative expression, I would call a covenant theology on steroids and uh, act as though uh, they, for the first time, have discovered what the implications of the covenant are for our question. Uh, interestingly, at the time of the Reformation in the 16th century, this was the consensus position of the Reformed Church, that because the sacrament of the Lord's Supper is one that requires active participation, remember the language of institution, take, eat, and oftentimes the language is employed at that point, remember and believe. Unlike a certain passivity that you might say marks the sacramental signing and seal of incorporation into and being the recipient of the promises of the covenant, the frequent administration, the regular participation in and receiving of Christ through the sacrament of the Lord's Supper involves an action on the part of those who partake, an active receiving, eating and drinking, as we said in our previous podcast, with the mouth of faith. Or another way of putting it, it was the consensus of the Reformed tradition at the time of the Reformation and ever since. And you can find that articulated in the confessions, probably most notably in the Westminster Larger Confession, where when it talks about the difference between wherein do the sacraments of Lord's Supper and baptism differ, it uses language in the answer of, and to such as have reached the age or the maturity of discernment. That is to say, if you're going to be nourished at a table by means of the mouth of faith, eating and drinking, discerning the body of Christ, examining oneself, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 11, uh, proclaiming Christ's death till he comes, as the words of institution put it, remembering what Christ has done, now, the sacrament is far more than a memorial. It's an active proclamation of Christ's death. It's a, an active, with the mouth of faith, eating and drinking of Christ. The, the consensus of the confessions has been that this is the warrant for even the practice 
of a public profession of faith that is heard by the whole congregation and witnessed by the Lord himself in the church's public worship of what is commonly called a profession of faith. In profession of faith, I once had a person ask me the question, well, where in the Bible does it say that the church should have a right of people publicly professing their faith in order to coming to the table? And my response was, well, it doesn't, but it's implicit. By virtue of its teaching that those who come to the table of the Lord must come proclaiming, remembering, discerning, examining themselves, uh, receiving Christ actively with the mouth of faith, you could say that a public profession of faith is just a public confirmation and attestation before the elders of the church representing Christ, before the body and congregation assembled, that those who are received at the table and the elders have responsibility to oversee the administration of that table, defense the table, as it's historically been put. Um, it's an ecclesiastical way responsibly to ensure that those who are admitted uh, give expression to and are confirmed as believers. Now, I'm not going to get into the question of at what age such a profession should be made and what belongs to what sometimes is called a credible profession of faith. I suspect, just as an aside, that one of the practical occasions for the advocacy of paedo-communion had been a tendency, perhaps in some portions of the Reformed churches, to put off that profession, to represent profession of faith as a sort of theological examination, and only those who are thoroughly conversant in all of the particulars of the confessions and the teaching of Scripture can really profess their faith and thereby uh, come and be admitted to the table of the Lord. I think that that tendency and oftentimes even practice of putting off profession of faith has contributed in some sense as a practical matter to some agitation for uh, the practice of paedo communion. I probably should say at this point that there's some ambiguity in the language of paedo communion. Not all so-called paedo communionists are really, in the strictest sense, advocates of paedo communion. They're perhaps advocates of children of a younger age making profession of faith and being admitted to the table. And I'm not going to offer any kind of, there is no one-size-fits-all. It was certainly true at the time of the Reformation, probably reflecting Old Testament practice with respect to the Passover, that members of the covenant community, younger members, would in their early adolescence, between the ages of 12 and 14, roughly, uh, be received at the table and having professed their faith, be admitted. whether that's the precise, this is a question that any local church through its officers, session, consistory have to sort out. And in every, every case is ultimately distinct. And you hear a confession and you make a judgment regarding it as to its genuineness and uh, thereupon receive people at the table. Now, I have to back up a little bit and go back to my earlier comments about agitation for paedo communion 
I've been pretty much defending the traditional reform view. It's more than an argument that broadly appeals to the membership of children in the covenant community. There are a couple of other aspects to the argument that are quite common and significant. One is an historical argument. The the claim is made by advocates of paedocommunion that this was the practice of the ancient Christian church in the early centuries of its history, both in the East and in the West. And it sort of fell away or ceased to be the practice of the church in the middle to high Middle Ages due to an increasing, even superstitious kind of sacramentalism, the doctrine of transubstantiation, uh, suggested that we we may not even give both elements. We'll withhold the cup from the laity lest the wine be spilt and the blood of Christ, the body of Christ, the real Christ now transubstantiated, become present really and truly, naturally, substantially in the elements. So we'll withhold the cup and we'll... Uh, require a greater degree of preparation for one's first communion, as it came to be called. Well, on the matter of the historical argument, historical arguments are always hard to evaluate, but I'll give a short, crisp response to the argument. The only evidence possibly supporting a strict paedocommunionism as the ancient practice of the Christian church resides in the Eastern Orthodox tradition. It's certainly true that in that tradition to the present day, children are communed at their baptism through intinction. However, the evidence that in the church broadly, certainly the Western church, which is broadly speaking the church with which the Reformation is to be identified, uh, there is no evidence compelling, incontestable, that this was the practice. In fact, there's counter evidence as late as the third and fourth centuries that it, that had not been the practice of the church. A short form of it would be to say that whereas the practice of paedo-baptism does have strong historical evidence as having been the practice of the church from the beginning, that is not the case with the um, the Holy Catholic Church using that language in its broad meaning and sense. The Reformers were not innovators, nor were the medievalists who practiced a form of first you're confirmed or make profession of faith, and then you're received at the table of the Lord. Ultimately, the historical argument is subordinate to the question of what the Scriptures teach. And so now I come to the last and most significant feature of arguments by paedocommunionists, particularly Reformed people, for receiving children at the Lord's table. And it's the argument that the Lord's Supper is virtually a new covenant form of the Old Testament practice of Passover. And the claim is made rather vigorously that in the Old Covenant, the Passover feast was celebrated as a household feast. And children were there. They even asked questions, you know, what's the meaning of this uh, bread and so on. And so when the Lord instituted the Lord's Supper on the occasion of the Passover, we should assume that that occasion tells us a great deal about a kind of continuity 
that obtains between the practice respecting the Passover and the reception of the whole household and all of the children as participants in that Passover meal that should carry over into the new covenant. I think the argument at various levels is both too quick and hasty and not adequately disciplined by explicit teaching in especially Paul's letter to the Corinthians, 1 Corinthians, 1 Corinthians 11. Um, when I say it's too hasty and undisciplined, first of all, it begs the question of whether all members of the household did participate in all members of the Passover feast under the Old Covenant administration. We know from Deuteronomy that after the first Passover, the Passover meal was celebrated but once per year. It was a pilgrim feast celebrated in Jerusalem, and the only members of the community that were obliged to participate were heads of households and their sons uh, who were at a particular age. And you can see that reflected in the New Testament when our Lord was brought with his parents to Jerusalem at the time of the Passover at the age of 12. The short form of it is, even though there's some dispute and debate about some of the particulars of the practice traditionally of the Passover, it's quite clear that it wasn't, as Pato communion advocates argue, a meal shared by all members of the household, and in particular the little children. It's highly unlikely. Calvin says you have to be foolish and even witless to think that infants, nursing infants, would have drunk the wine and eaten the bitter herbs and so on. Um, there are other elements there where they're too hasty. The Passover is only one of the Old Testament feasts, sacrifices, the Passover lamb that is fulfilled in Christ's sacrifice. In the words of institution, our Lord quotes from Exodus 24, where Moses with the 24 elders celebrated a sacrificial meal, and there was the sprinkling of the people of Israel with blood, the language of institution, words of institution, this is the new covenant in my blood, are probably a paraphrasing of Exodus 24. And that was clearly not a sacrificial meal in the context of which all of the children of Israel, including their young children, participated. But the Lord's Supper and the sacrifice commemorated in the Lord's Supper, proclaimed in the Lord's Supper, fulfills all of the sacrifices, guilt offerings, sin offerings, uh, all of the offerings, including the thank offerings, it's a Eucharist. Um, so you have to go to a passage like 1 Corinthians 11, which is the one passage in the New Testament Scripture that tells us what in the New Covenant is expected of those who come to the table of the Lord. And uh, I, I've really given the argument earlier in my presentation, so let me sum it up just once more. When Paul moves in 1 Corinthians 11 from a problem that he recognizes in the way they were eating and drinking at the table in association with their celebration of the Lord's Supper, which was dividing the body between richer and poor, some who came with a large lunch basket, fine wine, and much food to eat and drink, and others were sort of divided away or, or were left without anything in terms of the meal that was eaten, he, uh, that's the occasion for his recitation of the words of institution. What he's really arguing is that the way they were celebrating and eating and drinking together in a divisive way, not in a unified way, 
as a single body, all of whom have a participation in Christ. It's on that occasion that he reminds them of the words of institution and very interestingly says that uh, their maladministration or eating and drinking of the uh, agape, the love meal, in association with the Lord's Supper, represented a failure on their part to rightly remember the body and blood of Christ that was given for them, to proclaim Christ's death, to examine themselves. And there's a transition in the chapter from, this is what you're doing wrong, I remind you of the Lord's words of institution, to Paul's use of the language, whoever eats or drinks, anyone who comes to the table in order to enjoy participation in Christ must do so as one who believes, who has examined himself or herself, who is eating and drinking thereby worthily, not bringing judgment upon themselves. And those exhortations are to echo Calvin's exegesis of 1 Corinthians 11, exhortations that place a responsibility upon all who come to the table and partake in Christ. And those expectations are exactly what Reformed churches historically have meant to honor when they insist that those who come, come as professing believers, and professing believers in good standing, that is, who have not only been examined, but who have examined themselves. And that's why the practice historically, when the sacrament is administered, of a call to the examination of one's faith, hope, and love is a proper, biblically warranted uh, practice in the Reformed churches. And so it's for these kinds of reasons, to go back to the language of covenant communion, I would argue that Paul is giving us precisely in 1 Corinthians 11 a word regarding how the new covenant sacrament of the Lord's Supper is to be administered, it's to be received, how it is to be overseen and even fenced. And it's for that reason the Reformed Church historically has always insisted that between baptism and coming to the Lord's Supper, there needs to be a confirmation that the person coming has that mouth, the mouth of faith with which to receive Christ. If you want to learn more about infant communion, you'll recall Dr. Venema mentioning that he wrote a book on it. It's called Children at the Lord's Table? Question mark, assessing the case for pedo communion. He presents a historical, exegetical, and systematic treatment of the subject, demonstrating the validity and value of having covenant children partake of communion after their profession of faith. You can find it on our online bookstore at marsbooksonline.com. Beginning next week, Professor of New Testament Studies Marcus Minninger enlightens us on how to respond to conflict between peers from the perspective of the Apostle Paul. For more episodes, you can find us on our website at midamerica.edu slash podcasts. And wherever you listen to your favorite shows, be sure to search for and subscribe to Mid-America Reformed Seminaries Roundtable. I'm Jared Luchibor. Till next time.